uh, in case you are a newcomer, Jared Monshine. I am the uh, research director at the U.S. Study Center. And we are joined today, Ron, you're on the big screen behind me now, uh, by Ron Brownstein. He is a uh, senior editor at The Atlantic and a senior political analyst for CNN. And he joins us from New York. Usually he's based out of L.A., but he is a two-time finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for his coverage of presidential campaigns and the author or editor of seven books. Um, his most recent is Rock Me on the Water, 1974, the year Los Angeles transformed music, movies, television, and politics. And that was a New York Times bestseller like so many of his others. And previously, he served as Atlantic Media's Director of Editorial Partnerships and as the National Political Correspondent and a columnist for the LA Times. He's a winner of the American Political Science Association's Carrie McWilliams Award, its highest honor for lifetime achievement in journalism. He has... Um, that's, that's the official bio. The unofficial bio, from my own take, is he has one of the best columns you can possibly read on U.S. politics. And it's in The Atlantic now, and he just is great for moving beyond the news cycle. And sometimes there are some newsy things. Um, his most recent, recent um, column was on crime and how that's more of a electoral issue there. But he takes a historical look at it, and he really has just... Like I said, one of the best and most insightful uh, columns around. And so what I wanted to do today is let him address the audience and talk about the actual midterms themselves. What, what can we expect in these midterms? And we had a great and insightful discussion with Jane about sort of the broader cultural dynamics and where we find the U.S. political discourse these days. But I wanted Ron, who has decades of experience and insights, to talk about the actual elections themselves and you know the horse race stuff that those of us in this room in Canberra can really uh, appreciate. So I, uh, I'll let you uh, take the stage. Thanks so much, Ron. Thank you for that. Thank you. Uh, it's great that you're doing this uh, this detailed dive on uh, on American politics. You know, I wish we could fill a room in the in the U.S. for a day long discussion of Australian politics or French politics or German politics. Uh, but we're not always that uh, uh, globally uh, oriented. Um, I'm going to talk for just a little bit um, uh, and uh, try to put this election in a little bit of historic context, as well as talking about some of the unique dynamics uh, or specific dynamics, at least, happening this year, and then leave as much time as we can for your questions. Um, you know, uh, it, it, it has gotten to the point in the U.S. where uh, certainly for many Americans, it feels like turmoil is very much the, the new normal for our politics, right? I mean, we have uh, a, a sense of momentous events kind of washing over us constantly. Uh, 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 things, unprecedented developments, uh, screaming headlines, uh, social media that buzzes in our, you know, phones that buzz in our pocket uh, every day. Um, and, and it can feel as though you're, you're almost, you're, you're in the ocean, you know, you're trying to get your head above the wave. And whenever you think you do, out comes another one to submerge you uh, again. And certainly this election has, has had plenty of those moments. But what I would argue to you and the way I would like you to at least conceptualize and think about this election is that to me, it continues, it, it extends the fundamental pattern that is driving all of this volatility and turmoil in American politics. And, and to me, that dynamic really can be reduced to one sentence. Uh, and the one sentence is that as a country, we are closely divided and we are also deeply divided. And those two elements together produce a very combustible 
uh, compound and one that I think we are going to see on display again uh, in a few weeks and certainly in, in 2024. So what do I mean by closely and deeply divided and how does it uh, affect 2024? Well, one thing's to keep in mind uh, and, and in some ways to me, the most important uh, fact about this election is that if the Republicans capture one or both chambers of Congress, which certainly seems like the high probability that they will at least capture the House and the Senate is, is a coin flip, maybe tilting slightly toward the Democrats. If Republicans capture either chamber, it would mark the fifth consecutive time a president went into a midterm with unified control of government only to have voters revoke it. It happened to Trump in 2018. It happened to Obama in 2010. It happened to Bush in 2006. It happened to Clinton in 1994. You have to go back to 1978 with Jimmy Carter to find a president who successfully defended control of both chambers of Congress through a midterm. And that is one marker of what to me is the half of this, of this you know, defining truth of our era. Um, which is that uh, I think you can, you can say without really fear of exaggeration that we are in the midst of the longest period in American history where neither party has been able to establish a durable advantage over the other. We really don't have anything quite like, certainly not as long lasting, as the past roughly 54 years where the pattern has been um, neither side being able to sustain uh, a either a, an electoral advantage over the other or unified control of government, um, uh, you know, it, it is so much a part of our experience now to have frequent changes in control that we really don't even realize. In the kind of the way, you know, the whole fish don't know they're wet idea, we don't even realize how much of a departure what we're living through is from what came before in American history. But if you go back to the heart of the 20th century the period from 1896 to 1968, for 58 of those 72 years, one party simultaneously controlled the House, the Senate, and the White House. There were two periods of 14 consecutive years over that span, where first the Republicans from 1896 to 1910, and then the Democrats under FDR and Truman from 32 to 46, controlled everything for 14 consecutive years. Um, Republicans controlled everything for the entire decade of the 1920s. Democrats controlled everything for virtually the entire decade of the 1960s. Impossible to imagine that world today. In the last 54 years, we've only had 16 years of unified control, 16 out of 54 as compared to 58 out of 72. And over that th this, this last five decades, we have not had either side hold unified control for more than four consecutive years. What's more, leaving aside an asterisk case, which I don't need to get into, um, each time a party has, ha has lost unified control since 1968, it has taken them at least uh, a decade. Eight years is the shortest, but, but since 1976, each other time has been at least a decade to get it back. Um, uh, neither side has controlled the Senate for more than eight consecutive years since 1980. That's never happened in American history. We've never had 40 years where neither side has had control for more than eight uh, consecutive uh, years. So in all these ways, uh, I think what we're going to see in this election is the continuing pattern that neither side can sustain an advantage over the other. So that's the closely divided. 
the deeply divided is that the parties are more sorted uh, at this point. And you know, I sometimes joke to American audiences, uh, that's S-O-R-T-E-D, not S-O-R-D-I-D, although either might apply. But the parties are also more sorted at this point than they have been in any point in our history. Um, you know, historically uh, in America, uh, our political parties have been pretty ramshackle coalitions without much ideological coherence. We had a range of ideologies that went from arch conservative Jesse Helms to liberals like Jacob Javits or John Jaffe in the Republican Party and the reverse in the Democratic Party, liberals like Hubert Humphrey uh, on one side and conservatives like arch conservatives, segregationists like Richard Russell and John Stennis and John Eastland on the other. Uh, particularly in the last quarter century of the 20th century, there was a growing tendency of voters to split their tickets between presidential candidates of one party and Senate or House members of the other party. If you look as recently as the 70s and the 80s, um, and you look at the states that voted both times for Richard Nixon, and then again in the 80s, the states that voted both times for Ronald Reagan, at the end of those victories for Nixon and Reagan, Democrats still held about half the Senate seats in the states that voted for them both times. And after Reagan's uh, reelection in 1984, there were 190 House members, so well above one third of the total, uh, you know, 40% of the total, who were in districts that voted the other way for president. Um, these members exerted a kind of um, uh, centripetal influence on the parties. Um, they were, they were the, the, the members who split ticket tic, uh, ticket constituencies recognized that they had an, an incentive to make the system work without quite as much partisan warfare as we are now seeing, because they knew if it came down to shirts and skins in their districts, probably the other side would win. Um, uh, fast forward to today, I said Democrats held half the Senate seats in the states that voted twice for Reagan and half in the seats, the states that voted twice for Nixon. There were 25 states that voted for Trump in 2020 and 25 states that voted for Biden. Democrats now have 47 of the 50 Senate seats in the states that voted for Biden, and Republicans have 47 of the 50 Senate seats in the states that voted for Trump. Um, if you look at it another way, there are 40 states that have voted the same way in each of the past four presidential elections, which is the most consistency we've had since at least, I've only gone back to the start of the 20th century, but I'm confident that this the only period that might be like this is 1860 to 1880. Even in the 80% of the states, in other words, have voted the same way in each of the past four presidential elections. Even in Roosevelt's four consecutive victories from 32 to 44, only two thirds of the states voted the same way. And if you look at the battle for the Senate this year, it is almost entirely concentrated in those small group of 10 states that have flipped some point in the last uh, four elections. We're talking about Arizona, Georgia, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Wisconsin, uh, North Carolina, um, uh, as well as uh, a couple that have not flipped, uh, Nevada and Ohio. But most of the action is in the same few states that decided the presidential race last time. I mean, the, the same states that people obsessively checked the polling in in 2020 for the presidential electoral college outcome are the states they're obsessively checking now to try to see the Senate outcome. Um, we see an enormous uh, geographic 
and demographic and generational resorting of the electorate. Geographically, we now have basically the same politics in every state. In the reddest states like Texas and in the bluest states like California, you see the same dynamic. You take the biggest metros in that state, you draw an imaginary beltway around it. Um, and inside of that beltway, Democrats are getting stronger. And outside of that beltway, Republicans are becoming more and more dominant. Um, in 2020, Joe Biden won 91 of the 100 largest counties in America, 91 out of 100. Hillary Clinton won 87 out of 100 in 2016. But Donald Trump won 20, roughly 2,600 of the other 3,000 each time, right? The most that any candidate has won since uh, uh, Ronald Reagan in 1984. Um, similarly, we are seeing a widening demographic divide among most of the key measures, and we can talk about uh, that. And there is an enormous generational divide where the Gen Z and the millennials who equaled the baby boom in 2020 for the first time as a share of eligible voters, but not as a share of actual voters because fewer of them turn out, um, they are on track <clears throat> to potentially outvote the baby, boomer, baby boomers and older for the first time in 2024. And that generational change comes with enormous demographic change because these are two generations that are roughly evenly split between white young people and kids of color, young people of color, whereas the baby boom and older are 80% white. So we have an overlapping generational uh, and demographic uh, divide, which in many ways follows with the uh, geographic divide. Democrats are doing best among the kind of people who tend to congregate in big metros. Younger voters, people of color, more secular voters, more white collar voters who are integrated into the global economy and the information age economy, whereas the Republicans are pretty much the opposite. And their strength uh, are in the parts of the country that are rooted in the powerhouse industries of the 20th century, uh, agriculture, energy extraction, and manufacturing. As I like to say, we are now at a point where all the cherries on the slot machines line up. And I believe, and those who are, anyone who has read me, uh, you know, I've been writing for the last 10 years that the fundamental dividing line in our politics is between what I call the coalition of transformation, which are the people and places who are most comfortable with the way the country is changing demographically, culturally, and economically, and the Republican coalition of restoration, which are centered on the voters, the people in places who feel the most aggrieved by or threatened by both cultural, demographic, and economic uh, change. Now, so where are we, where does all of that leave us in 2022? What, what, what one thing it does is it underscores how deeply engraved the lines uh, are in our, in our politics. <clears throat> With 9% inflation, it will not be surprising if the democratic performance erodes somewhat among every possible group. But to me, what's striking is that even amid three quarters of the country saying that we're on the wrong track and the president's approval rating being in the low 40s, uh, we are seeing the basic divides in the electorate hold up. And um, the, the, the Democrats are still uh, holding a significant advantage among younger voters, college-educated white voters, depending on the poll, generally uh, women voters, certainly uh, secular voters, and Republicans are doing very well 
uh, among non-college voters, older voters, non-urban voters. And importantly, that non-college advantage among Republicans is beginning to migrate, particularly into the Latino community among Latino men uh, in particular. Uh, and we will see how far that goes. Now, um, all of these dynamics uh, point toward Republican gains in the House. Uh, you know, we only, the Republicans only need five seats to win the House. We've only had four elections since the Civil War, four midterms since the Civil War, where the party out of the White House did not win at least five seats. So you would have to, <coughs> just on that alone, they would be favored to take over the House. But the House elections are something closer to a parliamentary election uh, in American politics. Senate elections are, are moving that way too. But in the House, the candidates are not as well known. And it is easier to imagine a significant number of Democrats, although I don't think it will be like 2018 or 2010 yet for in terms of magnitude. But you could imagine where voters who are dissatisfied with the price of gas and groceries simply uh, and, and even if they have doubts about the Republican alternative, um, may simply decide whatever we're doing is not working, let's give the other guys a shot. And that, I think, is the biggest fear of Democrats, that for the last piece of the electorate that doesn't really, you know, deeply engage with politics um, and is not participating in the arguments that Democrats have raised to, to try to rebuild uh, their support and, and to some extent have rebuilt their support over the summer around abortion and guns and threat to democracy. Um, the, the Democrats have used that to create a much more competitive environment than you would expect from the underlying attitudes about the economy and the incumbent president. Um, but as I said, for that last slice of voters, that all of that is very abstract next to the pinch they feel every day from prices. And the House, for that reason, I think there are many Democratic pollsters who are worried that a lot of races that look close now, that last piece of, of the electorate is going to break disproportionately for Republicans. The Senate remains much more of a coin flip because you know in Senate races, it is true, they are becoming much more parliamentary. It is becoming much harder for either party to win in states that usually vote the other way for president. But as I said, the Senate battlefield is mostly confined to states that aren't really locked down for either side at the presidential level. And that allows for the comparison between the candidates to matter more. It may be that the level of discontent over uh, the president's performance and the way uh, uh, Democrats have managed the economy and to a lesser extent the border and crime is enough to sink uh, the last few vulnerable Democrats and give Republicans control. <clears throat> in almost every state that we are watching, Biden's approval rating is at 45% or below. If you go back to 2018, Republicans did not win a single Senate race in a state where exit polls had Trump's approval rating at 48 or below. Uh, in 2010, Democrats lost 13 out of 15 Senate races in the states where exit polls had Obama's approval at 47 or below. And, and in 2006, to finish my trifecta, uh, Democrats lost 19 of the 20 in states that had Bush at, uh, I'm sorry, Republicans lost 19 of 20 in states that had Bush at 45 or below. So it may be that in the end, that Biden's weakness drags down 
the Democratic senators in, in, the, in the most closely contested races. But to this point, we are seeing Democrats in Arizona, Georgia, uh, even to some extent Nevada, uh, but certainly uh, Pennsylvania, uh, run further ahead of Biden's approval than we have seen really over the last 30 years. And they have done that by focusing particularly voters in their own coalition, not only on what Democrats have done, but what Republicans might do with power. Now, you know, can they sustain that focus in the campaign's final weeks, particularly uh, with the Saudis putting a big thumb on the scale in the US election and moving gas prices front and you know, front and center in people's minds again. I don't think that's clear, but the, the, the fact that Democrats even have a shot at holding the Senate in this climate is a reminder of how deeply divided we are and how intractable these divisions remain. That you know, there, there are two ways to kind of look at the way the, the way this may turn out. If you're if you're if you're a Republican, you could say. Well, if this is as far as we can get with 9% inflation, that's a little worrisome about what 2024 might look like if the economy is better. And conversely, if you're a Democrat, you have to worry that even with widespread concern about what Republicans will mean for rights like abortion uh, and, the, and, the, and the threat to democracy that the Trump movement uh, presents, uh, which many Americans see as a threat to democracy, that that is not enough by itself to win if, if views about the economy are this dire. So I could imagine coming out of this with each side being in a somewhat equivocal position, but the deeper truth being that this election leaves us where we came in, where I came in, which is that we are closely divided and we are also deeply divided. And with that, I will stop and try to grab some of your questions. Thanks so much, Ron. That was excellent. Um, when uh, we were designing this program, we uh, were saying that we were going to have the meat and the potatoes in the morning, and then we'd have uh, Ron give us the chocolate cake at the end for the, all these great political insights on yeah. this, this stuff about where America's heading. Because one thing, one thing we've said to a number of uh, Americans visiting is um, as much as, uh, as Americans may feel like politics is just all U.S. politics just dominates their lives. The uh, Australians consume seemingly just as much, especially in Canberra. And you gave us a lot to think about here. So I'll just ask one question before we open up to the audience, because I'm sure the audience has has quite a few. But you you spoke about the election itself. You spoke about um, and the the Trump movement. But assuming that the if we look at the the stats uh, on on the polling right now, it looks like uh, as you said, Dems will pro Dems will probably lose the House and it's coin flip in the Senate. Assuming Republicans take the Senate. Uh, sorry, uh, Republicans take uh, the House of Representatives. What do you expect from that Congress in the next two years? Um, some folks are saying impeachment. Some folks are saying Hunter Biden all day, every day. But there's also an argument to be made that maybe there's some substance. In 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 the past, when uh, when presidents have been jammed up at home at midterms uh, after midterm election losses, then they go overseas. What what do you expect from from Congress and the administration in the, in the final two years? Well, I think the the single fact that is the driving engine of what to expect, or the single fact that weighs the most in my expectations of what to expect is the incredible number of 70 to 75% of Republican voters accepting the Trump 
lies that uh, Biden was, stole the election and Biden is an illegitimate pre president. And I think that will put enormous pressure on Republicans uh, in Congress not to reach any substantive deals with him. Now, they may have to at points. I, you know, we'll see how much influence the business community can exert to avoid a full-scale debt ceiling meltdown. But if I had a bet, uh, a Republican House, when the U.S. hits its debt ceiling, this kind of anachronistic thing we do, where you have to vote to raise the debt ceiling even after you've passed the budgets that, you know, that create the debt, um, I bet that's going to look more like Bill Clinton in 1995-96 and his extended battles with Republicans that included multiple shutdowns of government uh, than it does like what happened with Obama, which also uh, created a shutdown but wasn't ultimately as, um, as, as uh, divisive and, and combative. Um, I mostly expect confrontation. Uh, you know, uh, I, I mean, I, I have to say it is striking what Biden was able to do with Republican votes uh, in the Senate, but there were essentially no Republican, uh, virtually no, very few Republican votes in the House uh, for, for almost any of that. And I think they're going to be under enormous pressure to deny the, quote, illegitimate president any policy wins. Great. Thanks for that, Ron. Um, I'll open it up to the audience if uh, folks want to take advantage of having, having Ron with us. I think we have one over here. If you could just say your name and where you're coming from today, that'd be great. Thank you. This thing is on. Right. Uh, John Schilling's my name, Mr. Brownstein. Um, I'm wondering how uh, dangerous you think the GOP is for Ukraine. Uh, that's number one. Number two is how much of an issue is hammering home our present advantage in Ukraine? How important is that for the American electorate, if, if indeed it figures at all? I have no great uh, handle on that. Thank you. Thank you. Good questions. Um, look, I think if, uh, to, to your first question, um, there is a substantial piece of the Republican coalition, both voters and especially elected officials in the House, who are serious about trying to wind down and reduce the American commitment to Ukraine. I don't think that has much, nearly as much of a beachhead among Republicans in the Senate, um, uh, who, you know, throughout are kind of in more of a still a Reagan-esque hawkish mode of standing up to Putin. But uh, I do think that there is, a, there is a serious piece of the Republican coalition uh, that, that is uh, receptive uh, to the idea, you know, and, and plus, like, separate from the merits, you, you, you know, we see how uh, reticent, how reluctant McCarthy is to get crosswise with Trump on, every, on anything. And you, you know, you don't have to really think very hard about where Trump is going to be pushing this debate uh, with a Republican uh, a controlled Congress. By the way, that's, that's, that's part of the answer to the previous question. Imagine, imagine a Republican House making an important deal with Biden and what Trump would be saying about that at any given moment and how willing they would be to stay the course on, on whatever they, they find a way to agree upon. And I think, I think on Ukraine, he will exert uh, uh, a pressure 
But the, 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 the circuit breaker on all of this is that um, you know, there is not support in the Senate. So I, it, it's kind of hard to know. I mean, I, I could easily imagine the Republican House uh, holding back future or constraining, if not quite fully cutting off, uh, future aid flows. Look, the American public supports uh, clearly, you know, views Ukraine as the victim. Uh, uh, Putin uh, has become, uh, you know, tremendously unpopular in the U.S. But when inflation is this high, um, it kind of blots out everything else. And I think the, you know, kind of the the inflation crime border, Republican focus versus abortion, guns you know, proto-fascism as the dem democratic focus has not really left a lot of room for anything else. Thank you for that. Do we have another question from the audience? Yes, we do. Senator, thank you. Uh, thanks, Jared. Thank you, Ron, for your remarks. Uh, Stephen Loosley, senior visiting fellow here at the Centre. In recent weeks, Senator Mitch McConnell has gone out of his way to draw a distinction between the House flipping and the yes. difficulty of the Senate being flipped, talking in terms of statewide ballots where candidate quality matters a lot more. This clearly is endeavouring to set Donald Trump up for a fall, given some of the candidates he's endorsed and which he's refused to fund. How do you see the impact of the midterms looking to 2024 on both parties in terms of uh, candidates and, uh, and the primaries? Great, great question. Um, so, you know, McConnell, uh, nonetheless, is 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 really the you know the sugar daddy trying to fund all of these Trump <laughs> all these candidates that Trump kind of foisted on the party, and then kind of like you know put the boat out on the ocean. He was very involved in the primary, but once they got the nomination, uh, kind of walked away. And it's really been McConnell and his organization that has been bolstering uh, uh, these candidates. Um, I think there is actually uh, potentially an important lesson here, but one I, I, I very much doubt that Republicans will be willing to hear. I mean, this is an as I, you know, this is with a, with a presidential approval under 45 and inflation the highest it's been in 40 years. Um, these there were a lot of winnable races here that Republicans are potentially leaving on the table, uh, uh, much like 2010, but even even more so. I mean, if you had a generic suburban white state legislator running in uh, Georgia and Arizona. Uh, and even if you had the other candidate in, in Pennsylvania, David McCormick, uh, these races would be, I think, a lot tougher for Democrats than, than the, the race they've been able to create with a Trump-backed candidate. And, you know, a rational, if in fact, Trump-selected candidates lose uh, race, you know, th there's the potential the Trump selected candidates will lose in every state that flipped from Trump 2016 to Biden 2020, right? So think about it, Arizona, you could have Senate governor, uh, Georgia, you could have Senate, Pennsylvania, you could have Senate and governor, Wisconsin, you could have a Senate, um, and in uh, Michigan, you could have governor. So it is possible, and, and, and in some places, the results may be mixed, but it is possible that the Trump-backed candidates could lose even in this climate in all of the states that decided 2020 and will likely again decide 2024. Now, a rational party might look at that and say, 
okay, well, maybe this is not the formula to win back those places that we need to win back the White House. But I think Republicans are going to have a hard time uh, getting there uh, and openly confronting the implications that Trumpism has its own uh, ceiling. Senator, you know, there was polling out this uh, Sunday, which I thought was incredibly revealing. And I have a piece coming out in which I call this the double negative election in which it's pretty clear in polling that a majority of Americans believe Biden has mismanaged the border, crime, and above all, the economy. But it's also clear there is no clamoring on the part of most Americans to go back to the chaos uh, of Donald Trump. And in fact, in this poll that came out on Sunday, um, voters by 48 to 40 said they were less, not more likely to vote for a candidate who wanted to continue in Biden's direction and by 50 to 41, they also said they were less, not more likely to want a candidate who continues in Trump's direction. And in a separate uh, uh, question, they asked, do you agree with most of what Biden, congressional Democrats, congressional Republicans, and Trump want to do on a policy front? Exactly half of Americans said they disagree with what most of what Biden and Democrats want to do. But absolute majorities rising to 56% so they disagree with most of what Trump and Republicans want to do. Uh, and so that's kind of where we are. You know, uh, in, in, we say in baseball here, a tie goes to the runner. Uh, and I think in, in, in an election, a tie goes to the party that's out of power. Because as I said, those last few points of voters might say nothing more complicated than, well, you know what, whatever they're doing is not working. Let's give the other guy a chance. But if you're looking forward for what this might mean for 2024, that underlying reality that Trump is, you know, is not a majority figure in the U.S. Um, is still there. And the, it goes back to what I said before. If inflation is still at 9% in 2024 or in the middle of a deep recession required to you know, tame inflation, then you're in a Jimmy Carter situation and anything is possible. But if, if this is as far as you can get with 9% inflation and Trump-inflected candidates, if the economy is in a better shape, there's no reason to think he'll be more successful than he was last time. Great. Thank you, Ron. And I think with that, oh, sorry, we have one more. Yeah, Very thank last you. One. Uh, uh, John Murray, currently a freelance journalist. The United States Studies Center earlier this year in March uh, sponsored another conference here in Canberra headed the state of the United States. One of the correspondents streamed in from Washington made the comment that in relation to the um, uh, manipulation of the Republican Party by Trump, that America was one election away from becoming an autocracy. Would you say those comments were realistic or alarmist? Um, I, 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 I think directionally they're correct, right? I mean, we're, we're in a situation... I don't know if all the barriers could be destroyed in one presidential term, but we are in a situation we have not been in in American history, where we have a political party uh, that uh, whose dominant faction is fundamentally anti-small-d democratic. And, you know, we're all gearing up for this giant crisis in 2024. Well, the wolf is at the door. I mean, I don't know if it's made it to Australia, but the images of uh, masked armed men carrying automatic weapons, watching drop boxes in Arizona and challenging voters as they drop off their mail ballots, um, or what's been happening in Nevada with election deniers 
uh, taking over local election machinery or the possibility of you know, flat out conspiracy theorists winning um, at some of these Secretary of State races, particularly in Arizona and Nevada, races about which most voters have very little information and which are very susceptible to this kind of referendum quality that we were talking about before. Uh, I think there is enormous challenge and enormous threat ahead. And 2024 could be uh, a period, uh, first of all, I shouldn't even say that, 2022, um, if, if some of these candidates lose, they are not going to go away quietly. If Carrie Lake, the kind of the Trumpist nominee uh, in Arizona, loses for governor by 10,000 or 8,000 votes, which is what she would lose by if she loses, she is not going to say she lost. We're going to be you know, in the, in the mix right then, but certainly in 2024, particularly if Republicans win both chambers of Congress, there is the potential for an absolute full-scale constitutional crisis. Now, I don't know if you can eliminate all the freedoms and, and, and you know, uh, I don't think you can in a single presidential term, and I don't know if we would qualify as an autocracy by 2028, but I do believe that uh, we, are, we are in a unique situation where if, if the Trump wing of the Republican, the more power the Trump wing of the Republican Party gains, the more it will use that power in a Hungary-like way to reduce the potential that they will ever be removed from power. And that is a very real, clear and present danger. And we are finding in the US, as people, as political scientists who I respect have, have, have told me is the case in countries around the world, it is really hard to focus enough voters on that threat for that to be dispositive, which is what I was saying before, is that it is in some ways remarkable that Democrats are as close as they are given the economic conditions. And that is a reflection of how much of their coalition does view the Trump movement as a threat to their rights, their values, and to American democracy itself. But that probably is not going to be enough to overcome uh, the level of economic dissatisfaction that we are that we are speaking, you know, seeing. And so, if you want to protect American democracy, uh, you know, the first step is probably to bring inflation under control and to come out of whatever recession is required to do that long before anybody is voting in 2024. Thanks so much, Ron. And with that, can we please give Ron a round of applause? That was excellent. Really appreciate it. Thank you all. Have a good rest of the meeting. And uh, yeah, that, that is one of our best uh, experts in, in America on uh, US uh, uh, politics. And also, as, as those of you who've been in the room since earlier, you know, we actually asked Americans and Australians and Japanese respondents about these sorts of questions. And it is pretty interesting just how much more worried Americans are than our friends in uh, Australia and Japan.